Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. I've been thinking a lot in recent weeks about the notion of speech and how we talk, how we interact, how we engage with people. It's an important topic and it's something that might have a big effect on someone's life. If you're rude and hostile all the time, it's probably not going to go well. If you're just a total wallflower that never speaks to anybody, then you know, you're going to miss out on some opportunities to uh, engage with people and build relationships. Somewhere in all this, we've got to find some wisdom in how we manage relationships, and part of that comes down to how we speak and interact with one another. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago this passage in James, and I'm looking at one verse here, chapter 3 and verse 2, for in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and also able to bridle the whole body. This teaches that, you know, this matter of how you speak and how you interact with people is not something where you can just kind of say, I'm just going to go with whatever my default setting is. I'm going to go with my gut and just that's how I'm going to interact with the world. Now look, That's how many of us interact with the world in a lot of ways. And if you look over your life, you'll find it's gotten you into a lot of trouble. There are times when you should have said something and you didn't. Can you think of those? Probably just going with your default saying, I don't like to, I don't want to be, I don't want to confront it. So I just going to avoid it. The other thing happens too. I got to get up in everybody's business about everything. I've said too much about things and I should have kept my tongue. Well, that's a problem too. So somewhere between saying absolutely nothing and letting everybody know how the cow ate the cabbage on every single issue in the world, somewhere between those two extremes, you've got to modulate and find the right way to be in particular instances. And so it's going to require wisdom in how we do that. And it's not always the same. If you say, well, I'm someone who by nature just always freely speaks his mind, that doesn't mean that just because you're that way by nature, that it's right to do that in every circumstance. You might say, well, I'm just somebody, I just don't like to get involved. I don't like to say anything. Just, I'm not going to say anything at all. Well, if you do that, consider that in the, in the domain of raising a child. And your child, guaranteed, going to start messing up. Telling lies, getting in fights, causing trouble, all kinds of stuff. Those of you who have raised children, you're all nodding your heads. You, you know what I'm talking about. Well, if you take that other angle and just is like, oh, well, I'm not ever going to say anything. I don't ever want to cause any trouble. I'm not ever going to say anything. That's going to cause a whole host of other problems, right? So we've got to know some things about when to speak, when not to speak, and something about how we interact with people. And it's important that we recognize that. If you look over in the book of Ecclesiastes, you know, everybody knows chapter 3, which is to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. And there's lots of things listed there. And, you know, those of you who were alive in the 60s remember the... uh, I guess it was the birds that did a kind of a version of that that kind of rings in your head whenever somebody reads this passage. But verse 7 says, A time to rend and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. See that? There's a time for each of those things. You can't just say, well, I'm just going to be silent all the time. That ain't going to work. I'm going to speak my mind at every possible opportunity. That ain't going to work either. There's a time for each of those things. And we have to learn how to manage that. So where do we gain an appreciation for this idea of how we interact with people? 
There's a lot involved in it, and I'm not crazy enough to think that I'm going to plumb the depths of this today, but I do want to give it some consideration and look at some examples in the Bible. When I was in high school, we used to have these uh, cheers. The cheerleaders had these cheers, and they had one that started out, two, four, six, eight, who do we appreciate? Everybody knows that. And then you put your team at the end of it, right? That's Everybody kind of chants that thing. And that was very common when I was in athletics and whatnot. We would see that going on. I think it's important that we try to figure out who should we appreciate with respect to an example of how we ought to interact with people. Can we pick some things out of examples in the Bible that give us some guidance on how we ought to handle the matter? How we handle the matter of speech and engagement with other people. So I'm going to do that by looking at examples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can't think of a better example. And we're going to look at John chapter 2, 4, 6, and 8. And we'll see what we can glean out of His interactions with people in those four chapters of the Bible. So starting in John chapter 2, everybody knows this is the wedding at Cana. There was some conversation on Facebook this week regarding the matter of weddings and marriage, and I thought that was kind of interesting. And it, it kind of had me going back and looking at this passage anyway. Uh, we look at John chapter 2 and verse 1. On the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. Well, the concept of marriage as a public event is definitely supported by the Bible. Now, there's many things that are kind of wrapped up in marriage today and in wedding ceremonies. It's more a function of Christian culture or even American popular culture than it is something to do with what the Bible says about marriage. But we at least glean this much. A wedding is a public event, right? People are invited to it and people come to it. And there's, you see there's a celebratory aspect to it. But this is going on here. And in verse 3 he said, when they wanted wine, that means, you know, they were lacking or they were running out. When they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto them, they have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Now, here's an example where someone's going to Jesus. There's an interaction going on here. And when I look at this, when you think of the things Jesus Christ is dealing with, right? You think of Jesus Christ, He dealt with the sins of the world, right? He, he dealt with putting our sins as far as the east is from the west. You think about these high offices of Christ, our high priest and intercessor, and this great massive work that He's done. So when you get down to the level of, okay, we're running out of wine at the wedding, this seems pretty far down the list of things that Jesus might be interested in, right? Now, I think there's a lesson in this. Jesus is interacting in this situation. He's been called to interact in this situation. And this is a relatively trivial matter. And I think God's people can at times say, you know what, given all that God's got on His plate, my concerns are too trivial to take this before the Lord. But you're forgetting that God cares for you, and you're forgetting that God is capable to handle and manage all of that great stuff and at the same time help you with what are seemingly mundane and little things in your life. The lesson I learned from this, one of the things I observed from this, is that though this is a small thing in the cosmic scheme of all things that happen, Jesus Christ cares in this matter, right? And He's willing to help. And He's able to help. 
You see that? So you may have some trivial matter in your life right now, and you should know that the Lord cares about it. But as it comes to the matter of interacting with other people, you need to recognize that the Lord Jesus Christ was willing to enter into something that probably seems a little trivial, but He was willing to interact with them on that subject. It's possible to have things going on. You can hear somebody who's really troubled about something, and you might say, that is just such a small thing, I don't really understand why you're so upset about it. But that doesn't mean that you are exonerated from the notion of being able to provide some help, right? You should think of it this way. This really troubles this person. It's a small thing. It really troubles this person. Maybe I can be helpful. Maybe I can encourage them with something that I say or do. It might be a simple thing. Now, now I'm, I'm going to submit to you that while what Jesus did here was a miracle, it was a simple thing for the Lord to do, right? I don't think anyone questions that it would be easy for the Creator of the universe, the Savior of our souls, the Almighty everlasting God to turn water into wine is a relatively trivial miracle if you're going to think about the grand scheme of things. But the thing I think we can learn from this is that if others are coming to us with what we consider is a trivial problem, it may not be trivial in their mind. It may not be trivial to them. And if you can help them with it, that could be very instrumental in reducing their anxiety and their worry about silly things. Maybe later they might come to realize, you know, you were really helpful to me in that. And in hindsight, I realize that really wasn't much of anything to be worried about anyway. You see that? So the Lord helps in this matter, and He is demonstrating that He cares about us, and He cares about even the trivial matters of our lives. How do we care for the trivial matters of other lives? As we assess what is trivial, right? So that's something to think about there. Keep reading here. His mother saith unto the servants, whatever he saith unto you, do it. Now there's good instruction for us all. That's much broader than just dealing with this situation of the wine. Whatever Jesus says, that's what we ought to do. Whatever Jesus says to do, that's what we ought to do. And that's good instruction there from the mother of our Lord. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they fill them up to the brim. And He saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom. And saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth His glory, and His disciples believed on Him. You see, He was involved in what I'm going to call a trivial miracle. I hope you understand, I don't mean anything blasphemous by that. I mean, in the way we think about things, the scheme of what had to take place to make this happen compared to the things that God has manifestly done in the creation of the world, this seems like a relatively small thing. But look at the result of it when it was all said and done. When you think about it, applying it to your life, how can I be a help to someone who has a problem that I kind of regard as trivial? Maybe I don't have much regard for it, but it really troubles them. Maybe you can get involved and you can help them with that. And at the end of it, it manifested the glory of God. You see that? Now, in this instance, it's Jesus performing a miracle. 
But I said earlier in this sermon that if there's been any good visited into this world at all, it's a manifestation of God. It's a miraculous manifestation of God in this world. And if you're able to do some good in that regard towards another brother and sister in Christ, that is every bit as much a miracle of the grace of God and His existence in this world as turning water into wine. You see, these trivial things that we think are so tiny, they can have a huge impact. And it says this, It manifested forth His glory, and His disciples believed on Him. You know, there may be something good that you could do in the life of someone else that really helped them with something that you thought was trivial, and it was such a big deal to them that on the backside of it they said, there was something special about that interaction. That person actually cared about what I had going on. Everybody else has kind of blown me off, thought, well, it ain't no big deal. They cared enough to actually engage and be involved. I've seen some real love there that is not common in this world. They've seen a manifestation of the love of God in their lives through you doing something like that for them. So don't lose sight of that. God cares about you and He cares about your trivial things. And as we think about that as a model for how we deal with others, we should care about even the trivial matters of others because a lot of times you can be very helpful in bringing some comfort in those matters. And that might lead them to a conclusion that, you know what, there's something to this old Baptist religion these people are involved with. Those people actually love one another. Right? So that's a good example for us. Now turn over to John chapter 4. This is one that we have to keep in mind. That first one was like, you know, God cares about you. You ought to be caring about others, even in relatively trivial things. This one kind of sets forth the example of Christ receives sinners. Now if you're going out there in the world trying to say, well, I'm trying to find people who seem like they're pretty good already. And those are the people I'm going to try to interact with. Well, you're not really following the model set by the Lord Jesus Christ. There's people out there who have a whole lot of problems. Lots of problems. Some of the people who are most adamant about following Jesus Christ and doing what God said in the Bible were people that if you took that testimony off the table, you would say this is an absolutely contemptible, wicked person. Now that's a shocking reality, but it's in the Bible. I think we'll find somewhat of an example of it here. John chapter 4 and verse 5, Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus therefore being wearied with his journey sat thus on the well and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Now, I've talked about this many times before, how the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along at all. And there's a lot of history behind that. Basically, you can think of Samaritans as being people who were once sort of enfranchised in the realm of Israel and the, and the, the, the old law service of God, but through a series of political events have now gone and sort of set up their own religion that bears some resemblance to the old religion, but they got their own mountain, their own worship service. They're basically a heretical religion, okay? There's kind of groups that are kind of like that in Christianity. They've kind of gone off on their own way. They've set up their own thing. And uh, so 
to try to get you in the mindset of what that's like in this day. It's kind of that sort of thing. They're out of the way. Like people who were Orthodox Jews, so to speak, they're looking at Samaritans, they're saying their religion is totally messed up. And there's an ethnic component to this as well that came from interbreeding with the Assyrians and whatnot. So there, there's a lot of things in the mix here. But the thing that's important to note here is that Jesus is not put off by this. See what I'm saying? Like the typical Jew of Jesus' day would say, ah, that's a Samaritan. I have nothing to do with him. In fact, it only sullies my reputation to be seen speaking to someone like this. I don't want anyone to think ill of me. I don't have anything to do with Samaritans. Well, Jesus just kind of wades right into the matter. So whatever the contemptible person is in your day and in your mind and in your community, whether it's someone of a wayward religion or someone of a different ethnic group that is not highly favored in a certain community or whatever, these barriers are completely torn down here. And Jesus Christ is dealing with this person irrespective of all the social pressures that might come to bear on them. And the judgment that might come into play if someone said, well, why were you talking to that Samaritan woman over there? We have to have the same sort of lack of discrimination, right? We can't be concerned about the notion of, well, this person doesn't seem like they're quite right enough, either in their heritage or in their religion, to interact with them. This is another mundane interaction, like we're getting some water. You're at the watering hole, you're, you're going to get some water. This is a normal thing. So you're going to have opportunities to interact with people in the normal day-to-day -day stuff that you do. And there's opportunities there to minister grace into their lives by how you speak to them, even as Jesus did here. So she says, uh, how is it that thou being a Jew askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. She's as blown away by it, you know, as anyone else would be. Like, what? This is very unusual. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest ask of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Now, I think New Testament Bible readers, people who've been in the Lord's church, have heard things like this a long time. When you see her ask that question after what Jesus said, it seems apparent to us that Jesus is talking about spiritual things. He's talking about something spiritual, this water, right? And she immediately goes to talking about natural water, right? It's very reminiscent of the conversation that was had in the previous chapter with Nicodemus, where He's talking about being born, and, and Jesus is talking about a spiritual truth, being born from above or born again. And Nicodemus is equating it to natural things. You see, this is an inclination that people have. They have oftentimes a lot of spiritual misunderstanding about things in this world. You're definitely going to encounter that with people. But you can't take the angle on this. It's just like, well, they don't understand it, but I'm just going to not continue to talk about this with them, right? You can write people off for their lack of understanding. And let me just tell you, there's a lot of misunderstanding out there among Christian people, among religious people in general. There's all kinds of crazy religious notions. And people are apt to be very confused. Discipleship is about instructing people. And Jesus Christ was our rabbi. He was the master instructor. So he knew at all times he was going to be encountering some level of ignorance on the part of people 
but he was patient with respect to consistently putting the truth before them. And that's what he does here with the woman of the well. She says, you got nothing to draw with and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Well, she doesn't, she doesn't really get what he's talking about here. But he doesn't say, ah, you don't get it. You don't get it. You Samaritans don't get it. It's just like all the Jews said, you Samaritans don't get it. Pfft. Never mind. Now he's willing to continue to engage with her. She says, Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. Now he's going to contrast the spiritual with the natural. Now he's talking about natural. He's like, yeah, we get water out of this well, we're going to drink it, and in a little while we're going to be thirsty again. Right? That's the natural truth. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Well, she's still a little confused on the matter, but she's heard this much. Hey, this is a good news message. I may be applying it to the natural world. I'm not quite getting his meaning here, but... There's something good in what you're saying here. There's some measure of receptivity here. And she's starting to understand something. She understands at least that there's a good message here. Now, I said before that she is of a group of people that were not highly regarded by the Jews in their day. But the testimony kind of gets worse here on her behalf. Jesus saith unto her, Go call thy husband and come hither. Well, Jesus is kind of drilling into a matter here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidst thou truly. Now Jesus is pointing out something that is uncomfortable to deal with, but it's in play in the lives of a lot of people. Sin is always an issue that God's people are dealing with. Even if you're an old Baptist minister or you've been a member of the Lord's church forever and ever, you're dealing with the matter of sin and your old sin nature for the remainder of your days on this earth. Until we've had the redemption of our bodies or until we are with the Lord in glory someday, until we see things like that, our final glorification, you might say, we're going to have that issue in play. And it varies from person to person. But the matter of sin is something that we must deal with. And there's a very common notion now that Christianity needs to be all about forgiveness and nothing about repentance or being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? I think that was modeled in the controversial Super Bowl ad that everybody was talking about where you have Jesus gets you, I think is what it said, right? And the implication in that was that God is okay with whatever life you choose to live. Now, we'll get to that a little bit more here in a minute, but I want to Johnny Appleseed that point as we keep moving along. The woman said unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Well, she sees something about him. There's some kind of spiritual insight that she sees that he has. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. Ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when we shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. He says, Ye worship, ye know not what. 
we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Now he's talking about the Jews had the oracles of God. He's talking about we understand something here about what God has told us. And your religion has kind of gone off and done some other stuff. You've kind of appended additional things to the Word of God. You've come up with your additional practices and things like that. There's many groups in Christianity who have done exactly the same thing. So this is a context that you'll find as you're having water cooler discussions with people in this life. right? But Jesus doesn't say, well, you know, doctrine divides, so I'm not going to get into the doctrinal matter. Now that's a difficult one to manage, but it is essential if you want to understand the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't throw the doctrine out the window for the purpose of just saying, well, I just want to have a pleasant conversation here. Now, he's not unnecessarily hostile towards one. He's not trying to stir up some vain contention, but he's also not shying away from the truth. And that's the part where we need wisdom in how we talk to people about these things. We can become haughty and prideful and be like, oh, I, we know it all. We old Baptists, we get it all right. We got it all right. Well, that's, that's the wrong spirit to be in. But the other side of it is you can't just say, well, I'm just going to let them persist in their ignorance. We ought to have a conversation about the truth. And that's what Jesus is doing here. You worship, you know not what. Now, that's a pretty strong statement. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not necessarily saying that you ought to come that strong with it. Perhaps our version of that might be, do you really know what you're worshiping? Help me understand what your religion teaches that you worship, right? That might be a different way to come at it, but it's the same principle, right? Do you know what you're worshiping? Do you know what you're doing? And what's the basis of that? That's that you could have a conversation around that. But the hour cometh and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. So you can let people know, Hey, you know what? The God I know is looking for worshipers. You want to worship God? You seem to have an interest in worshiping God. You want to worship God? The God of the Bible is looking for people to worship Him, and I am seeking that on His behalf. God is spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ, when He is come, he will tell us all things. Well, they had some kind of conception of this Messiah in the Samaritan religion. They hadn't totally lost all that. So she, she had learned something that was right in there. Right? She's aware of that. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. What a remarkable statement. Right? Amen. What a remarkable statement that you could be involved in this conversation We've probably all been involved in some sort of religious conversations with people over the years, but we've never had the experience of somebody talking, saying, well, I am Jesus, right? That's the kind of thing that was going on in the first century here. And I always have to pause and think about, you ever had somebody say something and it kind of makes a hair on the back of your neck stand up or kind of gives you chills, you know? And I just wonder what her reaction to that. Well, it goes on. His disciples come around. She goes on and leaves her water pot. And uh, went away into the city and saith to the men in verse 29, Come see a man which told me all things that I ever did. Is not this the Christ? It looks to me like Jesus Christ has made a convert of this woman. Here's a woman that's of a wayward religion, of an ethnicity that Jewish people look down their noses at. She's got all kinds of things working against her here. Society would look at her and say, Man, I have nothing to do with this person. But the Lord gets in there and has a conversation with her. 
and is telling her some things that are true, and is building upon some little components of truth that she's latched onto, and in the end of it, she's out there now telling other people, I found the Messiah. You see that? That's how it works. You can't pre-qualify the people and try to figure out, well, I think this person here might end up converting. And this one over here is probably not ever going to convert. How many people would have raised their hands and said, well, the Apostle Paul, when, when he was Saul of Tarsus and out there murdering Christians, how many people would have placed their bets on, yeah, he's going to end up writing more books of the New Testament than anybody else? Anyway, wasn't anybody taking that bet? I bet most of God's people in the early church at that time were thinking, Saul of Tarsus is just a devil incarnate on this earth. He killed my mother. He killed my brother. Uh, he's running around trying to kill us all. He's a terrible person. Well, that just happened to be the person that God was going to use in a mighty way. So we need to be careful as we engage with people and as we speak to people. We need to recognize, first of all, but by the grace of God, we would be in exactly the same condition, if not worse. And as we interact with them, recognize that all of God's people are made up of people like this. Not a single one of us came into this world understanding all these spiritual things. All of us have got all kinds of baggage and issues and things that we've done wrong in our life, sins that have weighed us down and made things difficult. And we should see ourselves more like this woman rather than something better than this woman. And we should be willing to interact with them and tell them the truth. You've got to tell people the truth. You've got to receive sinners. You see them out there, they, they've got sinful things going on in their lives. There's any number of people right now who can say, I know people in my family right now who are living evidently wicked and sinful lives, right? And this doesn't mean there's no hope, right? You can't take that and then say, well, they're never going to convert or they're never going to learn or they're never going to become a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ or I have contempt for them as a result of that. You have to say, nope. But I do have to put the truth in front of them. I can do it in a loving way. You can be matter of fact about it. You don't have to beat them over the head with it. By the way, if they have a conscience in the matter, if they have a conscience in the matter, I don't think you have to browbeat them with the truth. Some of God's people are out there in the world. They're wiling in the world. They're doing all kinds of stuff. And they are born of the Spirit of God. And something in their conscience and in their heart is saying, what I'm doing is not right. Now, I'm doing it. And I'm going to keep doing it because I want to keep doing it. But something in their conscience is saying, I know this is not right. I know it's not right. That testimony of their conscience, by the way, is much greater than anything you and I are going to heap upon them. And yet, we should be clear about what the Bible's testimony is with respect to their sin. You know, you don't have to spend 45 minutes wearing them out about it. You can say things like, you know, the Bible says, beware your sins will find you out. You know, whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. You can't get away from it. That's just the truth. I'm telling you that in love. And you can tell them that. Sometimes you can tell people that and you can say, let me tell you about something in my life. Here's an area where I was wrapped up in sin. I was your age once and I was enticed by all sorts of things of the world. And I followed after some of those things and it caused me a lot of pain and trouble. And I bear the stripes on my back 
of the disciplinary rod of God as a result of my own foolishness. Now, please understand what I'm trying to tell you is not trying to rain judgment down on you and say, I think I'm better than you. What I'm telling you is that I'm just like you. And I'd like to see you avoid some of the consequences that I produced in my own life through disobedience. Now, that's a little different than anything Jesus could say, because Jesus was perfect and sinless, right? So there's always some element of, of the message that maybe gets changed a little bit in how we say it, because we're not Jesus Christ. But I do think there's a principle there of recognizing that you can't shy away from the matter of sin. It's not kind to shy away from the matter of sin. And I think there's a lot in Christianity today that are like, you know, if you get into sin, it just is so unpleasant that you're being mean to them. You know, if you see your kid running around with scissors, you ever hear running with scissors, right? That's dangerous. You're going to tell them, don't do that. If you have the ability, you're going to take the scissors out of their hands, probably spank their bottoms and say, don't do that. That's very dangerous. That's the way sin is in the lives of people. It's not some neutral thing that they can just indulge in forever and there's not ever going to be any consequences. The truth is it's going to bring all sorts of horrible consequences. And so it's loving, though perhaps difficult, to bring this out and to have those sorts of discussions. So that's an example of receiving sinners. We're going to be dealing with sinners and indeed we're dealing with sin in our own experience as well. So that's different. Let's turn over to chapter 6. This kind of gets into the message as you're talking to people. I'm going to go quickly over this because I think we're pretty solid on these matters. You know, in John chapter 6, Jesus is preaching. This is the I am the bread of life sermon. And he says things that we speak of all the time, like verse 44, no man can come to me except the father which has sent me draw him and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught of God. So I would say as a summary for this, what is said in John chapter 6, he's preaching salvation by the sovereign grace of God. This is salvation that God has wrought, and it's his decision, and it's his matter, and that's all there is to it. He's being very plain about that matter in John chapter 6. But if you skip down a little bit about verse 59, pick up about verse 59, these things said he in the synagogue when he taught in Capernaum. By the way, this is not on the Sabbath, and it's in a synagogue, and Jesus Christ is teaching. And there's some back and forth going on. You see that modeled? I said before in this Search the Scriptures thing we're doing in the basement that this is modeled in the New Testament. It's clearly modeled in the New Testament. Those who are suggesting that this is inappropriate for the Lord's New Testament church are just completely wrong about that. We ought to do the primitive practice if we're the primitive Baptists, and that's where you find it. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is an hard saying. Who can hear it? Wait a minute. This sounds, this is rough. This is a little different than the law religion that we were raised on, which is like, we got to keep the law, and if you do good enough in keeping the law, you find favor with God. Now you're talking about, <laughs> this is something God has done, and it doesn't have anything to do with us. Who can hear it? Man, I don't know if I like this. It's kind of a sentiment here. What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascending up where He was before? Now this is where Jesus really hits it hard. He's not going to shy away from it. Oh, you don't like hearing this? So I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop telling you the truth. It is the Spirit that quickeneth. If anyone in this world is getting born again, it's because God did it, right? 
It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The flesh is whatever you are prior to regeneration. All you are is someone who is ever and always in the flesh. That means nothing you could ever possibly do or produce in the flesh is ever going to bring about a spiritual quickening. You see that? This eliminates works-based religion. And people are offended by it, but Jesus represents this to them. So you can't step away from the doctrinal thing and say, well, you know, it's unpleasant when you get into (laughs) the doctrine. When you get into the truth, it starts getting unpleasant. This is part and parcel of gospel ministry, and Jesus does not shy away from it. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Jesus Christ is putting the matter of salvation entirely in His hands, in the hands of God Himself. And you can see why that would be offensive to a works-based religion like wayward Judaism in His day. People didn't like it, but look down here, it says this. He kind of closes his remarks here in verse 65, and he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me, except it were given unto him of my Father. It's not just wide open. Anybody could come and follow Jesus. It's just not that way. God has to give you something before anyone would ever have any inclination to follow Christ. Because the fallen heart of man hates Christ. He said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. From that time, verse 66, from that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Now Jesus did not shy away from these doctrinal truths. You might be able to make a case to say, well, he might have had more followers after this sermon if he had toned it down a little bit. You see? When they said, well, this is a hard saying, if he'd have come back and said, well, you know, I mean, hey, look, don't make too much of this. You do have to do good. You know, let's not get into this matter of sovereign grace. Well, that is the matter. <laughs> Eternal salvation is that matter. And anything that's other than that matter, you're not talking about the matter at all. You're just talking about something that salves the carnal conscience of men. And The thing that's astonishing here to me is that many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Even followers of Christ, the fact that we maintain the old man, the carnal mind and all those sorts of things, there's a part of you that wants to reject this. There's a part of you that says, I don't want my religion to be that way. I kind of want to earn it. Now, that's a crazy notion. It wouldn't get anybody into heaven, but that's how crazy your carnal mind is. You want those things. You want to try to earn things. You earned everything at work. You know, I, I earned the first chair in the band, and I earned to, to be the quarterback on the football team. I had to fight and earn and work to earn those things. We kind of get programmed for those things, but salvation doesn't work that way. Salvation is by grace. It's not by works. And Jesus made no apologies <laughs> for teaching that, and neither should we make apologies for teaching it as well. We want to be charitable in how we deal with people and mindful of their feelings and whatnot. We don't want to be extraordinarily hostile or anything like that, but we must not shy away from the truth because the truth is really what they need to hear and it's what will set them free. Well, finally, let's look at John chapter 8. And this is, you know, the woman taken in adultery. This is kind of along the lines again 
of Jesus receives sinners. If you're going to be out there doing some kind of ministering of the gospel to people, you're going to have to be talking to people who are sinners and their lives are kind of messy and problematic, even as our lives are, right? So don't lose sight of that. John chapter 8, verse 3 uh, and the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Well, the implication here is that she is a horrible and notorious sinner and everybody knows it. Anybody questioning this matter? This is something horrible that has happened. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted him up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Now this is a very important principle to remember. You're going to have to deal with sinners and you're going to have to receive them. And some of those people are going to be notorious sinners. You need to think, before I start casting stones at this person, what sins have I committed and am I not worthy of the same sort of condemnation that I might be willing to heap on them? Now God is the judge ultimately of men, right? It's not us. And we can recognize, there's a place you need to be in this where you recognize and affirm that sin is wrong. I'm not suggesting that you just overlook it and say, we're not going to deal with that matter at all. I'm not saying that, but I am saying you have to recognize that you too are a sinner. And if all you want to do is rain down condemnation on others, you're not exhibiting the grace of Christ that was extended towards you. You see that? That's the thing that Jesus is trying to get us to consider here. Had God not had mercy on any of us, we would be just as certainly condemned as this woman was. He stooped down and wrote on the ground, and they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. Now, I believe this is how we should be. If we come into a situation like that and you think, I just want to rain some condemnation down on this notorious sinner. That's full impact of, of uh, all the consequences of life. I want it all to come down on top of them right now. We should stop and think about our own lives and the conviction that we should have with respect to the punishments we deserve. And that should give us a moment's pause before we start raining things down on others. Verse 10, when Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, woman, where are thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? Well, no man can really condemn her on the matter of sin. It's only God is the judge in that matter. That doesn't mean that we're saying, well, what you did wasn't a sin. We're not saying that. We're saying we don't have any place to condemn you. Ultimately, God is the judge in these matters. She said, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Those are blessed words, but you need to understand both aspects of this. I mentioned the Super Bowl ad that caused a lot of controversy of the washing feet, you know, and Jesus gets us or whatever. He gets us, I think was the phrase. 
And there was a lot of discussion about this uh, after the Super Bowl. And to me, what was very evident in that was trying to promote a view of Christianity that says, neither do I condemn thee, but ignores go and sin no more. They're trying to present a view that says, I don't condemn you. In fact, I affirm you. And you can be a disciple and a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ even while you're practicing all sorts of things that are ungodly. Elder Sonny Piles preached a sermon years ago about the half hinges of the Bible, where, you know, if you've got a hinge, you've got two pieces and you've got a pin, and the door rotates, you've got to have both pieces of those hinges. Well, a half hinge doesn't have much value. You can't do much with a half hinge. You need both parts of a hinge for it to work and for the door to rotate properly. And what I think was being promoted in that ad was a half hinge. We're going to give you a half truth. Neither do I condemn thee. Right? But the other half of that hinge that is so essential for that whole truth to rotate and improve your life is go and sin no more. You see, Jesus Christ is one who forgives sinners. That's certainly true. But He's also one who calls you unto discipleship. And so... The example that we take out of that is that Jesus Christ was in the business of making disciples. That should be an objective as we think about how we interact with people. We've got to remember that Christ cared about the trivial matters of people's lives, and people get very wound up even on trivial matters. We can care about the trivial matters of others, and maybe we can be helpful in that and not dismissive. We're going to have to receive sinners because basically that's all there is out there. Right? And uh, you're one too. So we're going to have to recognize that about ourselves. And before we start casting stones at others about their sin, recognize, well, I'm a sinner too. You're not really casting stones. more like you're casting a boomerang. And that thing's liable to come back and hit you right in the back of the head. He taught grace unapologetically. And that teaching is the only thing that is going to deliver a child of God from the religious confusion of this world. Until they lay hold of grace, they're going to be apt to be pulled hither and yon with all kinds of crazy religious notions. When you accept that God did it all and humbly bow in submission to that truth, not only can you be indemnified from having all these other religious notions come into your life and mess with your head, you've also got the happiness of knowing it is a finished work and I don't have to worry about that anymore. And finally, this idea of making disciples. There was a purpose in this gospel ministry that we see there. It's not just always a casual conversation. You should always be thinking in terms of, how can I talk to this person in such a way that is willing to make a disciple? And making disciples involves confronting sin, declaring the forgiveness of sins of God's people, but also encouraging them to enter into discipleship Join the Lord's Church. Go and sin no more. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day. But we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.